Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Moji Karimi, CEO and co-founder at Simvita Factory, which is applying synthetic biology to reverse climate change. Simvita Factory specializes in cultivating microbes that support our energy transition and currently has solutions in development across three large categories. One, biomining for lithium and copper. Two, subsurface biochemical production, including gold hydrogen, more on that, and three, biomanufacturing of waste carbon dioxide into other end products like sustainable aviation fuel and biogas. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Moji at Simvita Factory, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. I was looking forward to today's conversation with Moji because on the surface, it sounds like they are tackling an impossible number of initiatives for an early stage startup, from lithium mining to hydrogen production to sustainable aviation fuels and more. But that's what's so exciting about what's happening in synthetic biology right now. Simvita Factory most likely won't be a world-class mining company or a world-class hydrogen production company or any of the above, but they don't have to be. They need to be a world-class at being a platform for developing and scaling micro-production that the industrial companies in each of these sectors then use to redefine and transition their businesses. It's a de-siloed and de-verticalized approach to innovation, and it requires cross-functional expertise and problem-solving. Moji and I have a great discussion about the different use cases his business is pursuing, and we talk about Simvita Factory's cross-disciplinary approach to innovation. Solving climate change requires new ways of thinking, and I hope you'll enjoy learning about Samvita Factory's approach as much as I did. Moji, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I am really excited to learn more about what you're building at Samvita Factory because you're building technology that solves multiple problems that all have a significant carbon footprint 
potential. And so I'd love to hear a bit from you about the high level of what you're building at Simvita Factory. Yeah, happy to share. So yeah, like you said, we're a platform company. So it's not just one thing that we're doing. It's a set of solutions. And you know, at a high level, we're deploying this nature-inspired solutions from biotech industry using principles of biomimicry. And these are economical solutions that we're bringing to bear to basically empower the energy transition and create this kind of net zero economy and the brighter future that we all want. You know, so happy to tell you more on the behind the scene kind of biotech and synthetic biology part of what we do, which is the engine, but also about the market applications across oil and gas, mining, you know, a lot of these industries that are really going through this transformation. And it's not just about carbon footprint, it's also about the environmental footprint. And we're helping them reduce both through this set of solutions from biotechnology. Well, maybe before we go into the solutions, I want to hear how you got there, because one of the things I saw, I think on your website or somewhere was the company originally started, or maybe you originally started, you know, your research in this area, working on deep space applications for trying to find the ability to essentially produce oxygen out in space for astronauts. At least that was my understanding. So maybe walk us through that origin story and how that ultimately led you to trying to work on climate change solutions. Absolutely. So yeah, it's been kind of an interesting journey along the way, and especially in terms of the applications. But, you know, my background is in the energy industry, you know, in Houston. And then my co-founder, Tara, who is also my sister and really the brain behind what we do. Her background is in biochemistry and, and biotech. And so before Sambita, after a few years in the energy transition, I just kind of, you know, wanted to do something different. And I came across this opportunity a company that wanted to commercialize DNA sequencing in oil and gas. So looking at DNA of microbes in the water and oil, building, building basically, you know, 23andMe for the subsurface. And so that was my introduction to biotech. I shared that with Tara. With her background, she taught me more about biotech. And that's where we kind of decided to start some beta with this vision to bring biotech outside of those common applications, you know, in pharma and, and medicine. And so at the time, Tara was writing a book for Springer, researching around artificial photosynthesis. And artificial photosynthesis, you know, turning CO2 basically into sugar, which is the classic photosynthesis, but also other things. So we picked that as the first kind of application for biomimicry and, and using CO2 as a feedstock. At the time, we're thinking about it not just from the you know energy transition benefits, but also using CO2 as a feedstock in general. And the one thing that we researched was how you know, for astronauts going into deep space, they need to have regenerative ways of, of producing food. And so if you could use that CO2 that they breathe out, which is, you know, one cool gram per day per person, it, become, it will become a sizable amount once you have six people, you know, going into deep space. Using that amount of CO2 and turning it into sugar through our, you know, uh, biochemical reaction so that they could use as a backup kind of life support. So that was the first project actually that we did for a private space agency. And it was interesting because the extension of it is for Mars because 96% of the air is CO2. You don't really even have to do capture. <laughs> you just you know, use that abundant CO2 
and go from that to fuels to glucose, from glucose to biomanufacturing to even pharmaceutics, proteins, nutrients. So it creates this kind of circular system, you know, and what was fascinating was this is what we learned from space industry. Like every system is regenerative, is really built with sustainability in mind in that they don't need a lot of energy input and they're not heavy, they're not, you know, bulky. And so we brought those design principles later to how we design and commercialize the pathways across, you know, our energy transition applications. And what made you leap from the deep space exploration into working on energy? Well, the main thing was everyone told us, you know, if you want this to become a really big company, it's not going to happen in space because unless if you're in satellites or rockets, the space industry is quite small right now. Up until, you know, when Elon Musk land on Mars, things would change. But it's, you know, for now, it's like everything about a space is what can we learn? So then we will apply those solutions on Earth. And this is precisely what we did. Like we learned that space industry has been thinking about CO2 as a feedstock for a long time. And so how much of that is relevant to applications on Earth? And so that evolved into, you know, focus on energy transition, especially with my background in the energy industry. I've been in, in Houston. And if you remember, kind of towards the end of 2017-18 was where there was more of a push around, you know, ESG and companies really starting to announce their 2050 goals and, you know, carbon capture, utilization and storage to start to formulate as an industrial category. And we had the perfect solution because of what we had previously done for aerospace. You're the um, second entrepreneur I've talked to in a few weeks who started with a, a space focus either in their career or in their business and ultimately realized, you know, maybe I should take what I'm learning and apply it to the, the challenges we have here on Earth. And I guess it makes sense, you know, if you're focused on space, you're focused on planetary systems in general. And so, you know, becoming knowledgeable about how to uh, how to work on, on other planets uh, and then applying that knowledge here at home is an interesting path and interesting to see how many more entrepreneurs will get wooed by large space issues and then realize, you know, hey, maybe we need to make our own planet more habitable for future generations. Before we dive into your own solutions, maybe just define for everyone who's listening what you mean by biomimicry. Yeah, so it's basically the principle of looking at nature and see how could we replicate that as humans in a way that is engineered, scalable, robust, you know. And that goes from just the design principles, like, you know, airplane looking like a bird, because that's what they've looked and saw. And it's like, oh, maybe we'll try that. All the way to more advanced methods of kind of learning about how nature works. How is it that plants under ambient pressure and temperature could fix CO2, you know? And chemical reactions don't. They, you know, need, you know, a thousand degree centigrade to activate the reaction. And how could we learn? And then because of this revolution, basically, that's going on in bringing the cost down for DNA sequencing, for biotech. So that opens doors to new possibilities. That was even crazy to think about just a few years ago. You know, so, you know, looking at natural systems, especially in our case, microbes that are in nature, you know, that are fixing CO2, that are eating methane, that are producing hydrogen, that are bioweathering, you know, extracting minerals from the rock and see, you know, these are proof points that this is possible. 
And can we as humans study that, understand it, with the next step being controlling it and turn it in, into an engineered solution that we could deploy? And, you know, if you think about it, there's thousands of examples in our daily life, you know, if even from fermentation to, to get beer to, you know, every, everything else is at some point we learned that, you know, in nature this exists and we turn it into something that we could control and use. And help me understand how you're controlling and using it. You have three, I think, go-to-market applications of your technology today. Maybe define each of those for us briefly. Yeah, this could be a good time to just kind of give you the lay of the land. You know, so the, the vision that we mentioned for really empowering the energy transition is through this set of microbial solutions. And they go kind of in three different themes. The first theme is sustainable extraction of natural resources, whether we're talking about hydrocarbons or we're talking about minerals, you know, metals that go into energy transition. You know, from here on, companies are going to put more focus on sustainable extraction methods. And, you know, biotech has solutions to offer. Second theme is sustainable production of chemicals and fuels through biomanufacturing. You know, we're starting to replace a lot of chemical reactions with biochemical reactions, especially for reducing the scope one emissions. And then the third one is sustainable renewal of any waste that's created within that extraction and production process back into other sources of value. So we see CO2 as an example as a waste that you could use and recycle into other products. Now, these kind of three themes then feed into our platform, and we have three business units or verticals. The first one is CO2-based biomanufacturing. This is where we have CO2 to ethylene for decomposition of polymers and plastics. We have CO2 to sustainable aviation fuels that we're doing with United Airlines, and we have CO2 to renewable natural gas, you know. There's other solutions in the, in the pipeline, but these are the, the kind of three key chemical pathways. The second vertical is biomining. This is using microbes for better extraction of minerals from the ore body. We have a special focus on copper for bioleaching of copper. And also we have a new method for bioextraction of lithium that then goes into batteries. And then the third vertical is what we call subsurface biomanufacturing. This is basically turning a subsurface reservoir into a bioreactor and doing chemical reactions in the subsurface. And the flagship project is what we call gold hydrogen. It's a new way of producing biohydrogen in the subsurface, fermenting the unrecovered oil. So as a starting point, hydrogen is kind of the chemical of choice for subsurface biomanufacturing for us. But yeah, that's it in terms of the three verticals. So many questions. We're going to spend probably the rest of the, the episode unpacking amongst those three areas. Which of the three right now is driving the most commercial interest today? And which of the three do you expect to be the largest part of the business in the future? Yeah, if I look at both kind of the technology readiness level and also considering the, the demand in the market combined, I would say right now biomining is really our highest or closer to market because you know, especially for clay lithium extraction, because 89% of lithium comes from brine and we, we need a lot more lithium. So companies really wanted to figure this out, how to get lithium out of clay. So that's a very growing fast area, coupled also with bioleaching of copper, because today 20% of the world's copper is already bioleached. And we're helping these companies, you know, really improve their recovery. So biomining, and then really fast followed by gold hydrogen. We just completed our, our first field trial in the Permian Basin two weeks ago with really encouraging results. And, 
you know, we'll already starting to plan for the next one. And so this too, part of the reason that they're really, I think, initially are going to be to market faster is because we're deploying the microbes in the environment. So this is what, you know, in situ deployment or in situ synthetic biology, as opposed to the third category, though it's like really, really high potential, but it just takes time to build this, you know, plants, scale them up, the risk of technology. So kind of, you know, biomining and gold hydrogen, it's kind of late 2023, 24 kind of, time frame for commercialization, whereas CO2-based chemicals, we're, you know, thinking about 2025, six and beyond. Well, then let's let's dive in first to biomining. You know, I'm, I'm a believer that in order to scale a business, you got to find the, the initial market first. And even if that's not the moonshot part of the business, it's what's going to help you get to scale initially. And I imagine there's still quite a bit of value in solving biomining, even if the other two didn't exist for Symbita Factory. So let's start. You mentioned two big use cases with biomining. One was more sustainable lithium extraction, which obviously is extremely key to our electrified future. And two, you mentioned bio-leaching of copper, which obviously copper is also the glue that, that binds our electrified world together. And so maybe help us understand, let's take those one at a time. What's wrong with lithium extraction today? We all have probably a sense of it, but be good to hear it in your words. And how does synthetic biology help improve that process? Yeah. So let's start with kind of, you know, why is this a big topic now? You know, like all of us in climate tech, we've been hearing more about mining and metals also just like in the past six months. And it's really because the demand for energy transition metals, you know, is going to increase by about 500% by 2050, right? We need over 3 billion tons of minerals and metals, basically, across wind and solar, geothermal, for energy storage also, to stay within this kind of two-degree cap that we we'll all want. For copper, you know, that will be an increase by 40%. And then for nickel and cobalt, 60 70%, and lithium, 90% over the next two decades. So then you look at, well, what are the projects that we have right now? Like what's in the pipeline? How much is available? And are we going to really hamper the growth of EV market because we don't have enough lithium? And if you're seeing in the news articles, that's already happening, you know, because having access to metals is becoming more difficult. So then in terms of how these are done today, in the case of copper, there is a lot of resources, but they're becoming low grade. You know, a lot of new resources are low grade. And as they become deeper, the economics of being able to do open hole mining just doesn't make sense anymore. So companies are looking at two solutions. On one hand, they need to deploy methods that allow the use of uh, low grade ore and still be able to extract enough copper economically. And so that's why bio leaching of calcopyrite is a method. And then second is kind of a bit into the future, this principle of in situ leaching, to be able to not have to remove all the rock out, just you just drill wells and inject the chemicals that kind of wash off the, the metal. So the mining industry is working Just to interrupt you, Moji, what is leaching? Whether it's bio-leaching or in situ leaching, what, what do you mean by leaching? So this is basically, you know, when you remove all the rock, if you've seen pictures of open mines, right? They, they stack them up in what is called a heap. It kind of looks like a landfill. And then from the top, you spray in really corrosive acids, like sulfuric acid. And that acid would react with the rock and separate the metal, 
which comes off from the bottom, and then they do the post-processing to purify, let's say, to you know copper. So that's the leaching process. You use sulfuric acid, and that's part of the problem. Say for gold, you use cyanide, which is even a bigger problem. But bioleaching is where you replace the injection of direct injection of say, sulfuric acid. Instead, you spray the microbes, and microbes do some of the same reactions or produce their own organic acid to basically separate the metals. So, you know, I think I mentioned 20% of the world copper today is already bioleached. So then you would think that, you know, these are big mining companies that probably already have the most optimized microbes out there with like sophisticated labs that they, because these are the engine basically for getting the metals out, right? But what we found is that that's not the case. And that's where we're helping the mining industry improve the efficiency of these microbes both to get more metals out, but also to reduce the overall environmental and carbon footprint of the process. So that's for copper. For lithium, you know, it's a little bit different because it's not that there is this current process that we're just trying to improve. It's that, you know, most of the world's lithium comes from brine and we have clay lithium, which is, you know, of course different, but not, you know, we don't, there's not a lot of commercial methods for extracting lithium from clay and we have developed a new method. So working with, you know, the big players in that space in the US to commercialize that. So, you know, if I understand lithium, you say extracting lithium is through brine pools. These are big open air, large, essentially pools of liquid that have a lithium suspension in them that you are eventually, different companies have different chemical methods for, for pulling the lithium out of that suspension. And you see these big, like bright colored, terrifying looking, you know, green and red pools that are sort of on the surface of earth and in various parts of the world, mostly in China today. And what I'm hearing you say is you're developing methods for being able to dig down into clay soils and use microbes to extract the lithium out of clay. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, there is this lithium clay belt in the U.S., you know, that goes through several of the states, including Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. And that's why you see companies like, you know, Lithium Americas and others really active in those areas. All these guys, they're doing clay. They're not doing brine. So it's a, it's a really exciting, I think, way for U.S. to play a bigger role in the local supply of minerals that then go into EVs. Because a lot of times, you know, people don't know what goes behind producing these uh, minerals, you know, and I think where this all comes together is, you know, if you look at cobalt, more than two-thirds of the cobalt comes from Republic of Congo. And that is sent, the ores are sent to China for processing, and then it ends up in the U.S., you know, but now everyone is paying more attention to that supply chain. I should note that we're recording this episode the day after the Inflation Reduction Act passed the Senate. So, Still TBD on what exactly is going to happen there, but there were quite a few incentives in that bill that focus on onshoring EV battery production. And if I understand correctly, a lot of the consumer facing EV purchase incentives are only applicable for large swaths of EV batteries where either the manufacturing or the materials were sourced in the United States. So I imagine you'll see continued demand for that solution, assuming you can validate the technology for it. Yes, we're very happy about that. And I think this was the right incentive across the board. This 
touches several of what we're, you know, different areas that we're working on at Sambita, both for, you know, carbon capture and also for, you know, minerals and metals that enable the energy transition. So before we move on to talking about subsurface biochemical and gold hydrogen, which is a totally different topic, today a lot of this mining happens by injecting acids or whatnot, as you mentioned, into rock. What are the risky byproducts of using microbes and biomaterials to do similar types of extraction? The reason that people do this is to reduce the use of, you know, like cyanide and, and sulfuric acid both for cost reasons and also what happens is when you use sulfuric acid, for example, and at the end, the liquid has to go somewhere, right? So it's not like it all gets consumed. So what happens is basically they set up a pond nearby the mine and all the runoff after processing goes into the pond, which creates what you know is known as acid mine drainage or AMD. And basically imagine a you know, kind of a pond with like two, three million gallons of pH2 water. And usually they're next to a town. Once in a while, they, you know, end up in the news because a dam breaks or something. And, and you know, it's a problem. And mining companies have to, in perpetuity, take care of these ponds. And really, their goal is to increase the pH, say, from two to seven throughout time, right? And that's why they even own mines nearby and they dump lime to neutralize the acidity throughout time. When you use microbes, you don't have the same process. You know, the mechanisms are different. You produce a lot less kind of aftermath materials, but even those are organic because they're made by microbes as opposed to, you know, some of the more corrosive things that humans do. Great. Well, let's let's talk about gold hydrogen. So, you know, what you just talked about is adding microbes to rock that has valuable ores in it in order to extract the ores more sustainably. Now switching gears to a different part of your business, I understand that subsurface biochemical is essentially finding either oil wells or natural gas reserves, I think probably more natural gas reserves actually, that either aren't producing anymore or that you can help flip the economics on where you can add microbes to the subsurface and and actually generate hydrogen in a more sustainable way than hydrogen is generated today, which is typically with electrolysis on top of natural gas. So maybe A, correct what I just said, and B, unpack that a bit more for us. Sure. You know, I think this is a good time also, like when you look at some beta, you know, you could see like, how do you guys do mining? And then there's like oil and gas and the CO2 base. It's because we have this belief in the platform nature of, biotechnology and you know a lot of what you learn from microbes in the environment are the same whether they come from the mine or in the subsurface and no one has done this before no one has really explored what this means what solutions does this enable and this is really why we're more aggressive and bullish in setting up this kind of multidisciplinary teams where you could put a biohydrometallurgist next to a biogeochemist next to a petroleum microbiologist to really understand this environmental systems and what influence could we have on the microbes to either better make you know better products or, or reduce the environmental footprint and carbon footprint of any given process. So a perfect example of that is you know soft surface biomanufacturing and, and gold hydrogen. And so if you look at you know basically the economy has been built on fossil fuels so far, right? So we've been drilling all these wells from 
you know, 1900s, but, you know, mostly 1920s, 30s and, and onward. And a lot of those wells are now end of life. And, you know, they're producing less than five, 10 barrels a day, but the capex have already been spent to create those. So some of them actually creating problems because if they're not sealed correctly, they will emit methane, which is a big problem already. So for me, I see those as a stranded assets that someone else had already spent the capex to build. So these are subsurface facilities. There were some oil there that we produced fine. But now, why don't we go use them as subsurface facilities and have access to the hydrocarbon that's undercovered as a cheap carbon source in the feedstock? But we don't want to create fossil fuels on surface uh, for obvious reasons. What if we do the reaction in the subsurface? So use microbes in the subsurface to ferment the oil and produce hydrogen, because that's something that, you know, the demand for zero carbon hydrogen is increasing rapidly. And so that's the principle, you know, and it couples nicely with the fact that, you know, we're now realizing that there's even natural sources of hydrogen around the world that you could go explore and drill wells and just produce hydrogen. So a lot of those have biological sources. So again, biomimicry, right? So how is this happening? Can we control that? Can we improve that process to create a new way of producing Hydrogen that's cheaper, in our estimation, less than a dollar per kg, but it's also sustainable into the future, given the resources that we have already. And where are you in the production pipeline here in terms of whether it's commercial readiness or just general technology readiness? Yeah, so we've been working on this across the past year, and we just completed our first field trial, which was a big deal in kind of de-risking the technology in the Permian Basin just two weeks ago. So in that case, basically, we injected the microbes into a single well. So the microbes then had exposure to the hydrocarbons, and we basically shut in or closed the well for three days. And then after the three days, you reopen the well, and you measure, okay, well, how much hydrogen are the microbes producing? And the amount that we saw there was really encouraging, you know, put into the metrics that we're looking for for commercial deployment, which is to go to a reservoir and basically, you know, 5 to 15 wells to produce, you know, 10 to 15 tons of hydrogen a day. We have line of sight to that now. So we're not getting ready for the second field trial, which is more in the commercial setting where you have a, it's not just a single well, you have a producer well and you have an injector well. So from the injector well, you produce, you inject the microbes and the nutrients, and then you produce the hydrogen on the other end, exactly as you would imagine a subsurface facility. You just introduce the input and you extract the output. And so if I understand, you've got a well, an oil well that's no longer producing profitably anymore. There's methane, obviously, in, in the well as, as well, because it's just the nature of, of, of drilling. Typically, wells are either capturing the methane, which is, you know, we use as natural gas and connecting it to a pipeline and shipping it off, or they're just flaring it. So you're injecting your microbes in there. Methane is CH4. The microbes are reacting by essentially eating the carbon out of the CH4 and, and generating hydrogen as a result. Is that generally correct? It's generally, not to get too technical, so this, this specific solution works better with like liquid hydrocarbons, whereas methane is more in the, in the gas phase. Though, more often, you see both in the same reservoir, so you're correct. And it's also, 
it touches on a different area too with methane. A lot of the natural gas reservoirs, they also produce CO2, right? So there's this other process called underground methanation. And what they're trying to do there is to convert more of the C2 to methane so that you reduce the overall emissions that you have to deal with on surface. So this is part of what the oil and gas industry is kind of studying. But for us, we you know focused on the hydrogen pathway, producing hydrogen in the subsurface. And then what happens to the hydrogen when it's produced? You know, if you're at a well that isn't connected to a pipeline, you're still going to have to transport it somehow. And I don't think there are large hydrogen pipelines today that exist across oil wells. So talk about the infrastructure that needs to get built to support this at scale. Yeah, so that's where it gets really interesting. And there's a a bunch of options that you have. First off is because of what you mentioned is to pick a location where it is close to a hydrogen infrastructure, whether near a blue SMR kind of plant or other use case, or have already some of this, you know, commercial arrangements in place. You know, I think California for that reason is a great place to, to, to do this. These are producers that are already using methane to generate hydrogen. And so thus essentially already have a business here and you're helping them explore other other pathways to commercialize that same business. Yeah, like anyone that has a kind of a steam methane reforming plant, I mean, they're already making hydrogen from methane. So, of course, they have already have pathways for how that hydrogen is being used. And if they're doing blue, means they have to capture the C2 from that plant and inject it, right? So that means they have a study and they have available a nearby subsurface place, right? So then you can look at a different pocket in that same reservoir to produce gold hydrogen, and then you could mix the gold and the blue. So that logistically makes sense. But in a more simple way, you could use the hydrogen on surface to turn it into ammonia for easier shipping. You could turn it into electricity. Uh, It becomes a case by case, you know, what makes sense. But this is also why we have partners like Chart Industries who have invested in gold hydrogen program and they specialize in liquefaction and, you know, transportation of hydrogen. And the rest is just getting off takes. Great. And now maybe let's go into your, your third business line, which is around oil carbon biomanufacturing. You mentioned being able to generate sustainable aviation fuel. You mentioned something I had not heard of called renewable natural gas. Maybe explain a bit about what this business line is and what some of the outputs would look like. Yeah, so this is kind of where the, you know, Samita started. You know, one of our first projects was C2 to bioethylene, you know, with Oxy. And then from that, we added C2 to SAF and, and now renewable natural gas. So what, what kind of we're trying to accomplish here is, you know, we have this problem with CO2, right? And a lot of focus has been around how to capture it, but then how to get rid of it, like to store it in the subsurface. And what happens then is you're spending money capturing CO2, you're spending money storing CO2. No one is seeing a direct value from that, apart from for the climate purposes. Like, yeah, this is CO2 that was out, especially if it was from direct air capture. What we're trying to do is to say, that makes sense in the short term, and we need it. We know we need it because we're looking at the model. With the 2050, even if we slow down emissions, we still need to take CO2 out of the air, right? But going beyond that, eventually we have to get smart about this and figure out ways that companies would, by default, basically use CO2 and 
get more CO2 out of the cycle, apart from being dependent for things like 45Q. So what that means is you have to figure out a way to make money from CO2. And that's why CO2 utilization. If you could turn the CO2 into something else, that's our value, you know, and find someone that will pay for that, you know, then you create a closed loop carbon system. And that helps, you know, kind of not have to really slow down the economic growth of the world that has been fueled by fossil fuel, but also not have to be punished by the emissions because we could capture them, we could reuse them. So before we go into the, the how and the what that you're developing here, a question I have on CO2 utilization, and you know, we're investors in companies like 12 and Air Company, so we've we've certainly engaged in companies that are focused on CO2 utilization. I'm curious what you need to do to ensure permanency of the CO2 uh, that is being utilized so that it's not just re-released once it the end product that is generated is consumed by someone. So whether that's an alcohol, whether that's carbonation into a beverage whether that is a perfume, et cetera. I'm very curious what the sort of carbon accounting economics look like there in terms of ensuring that the CO2 that's captured and reused isn't just then re-released. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. So in some cases where you're turning the CO2, for example, into um, PVC and it becomes a pipe goes under someone's house, let's say 100 years. In other cases, that's not what happens, especially fuels. And that's why initially we stayed away from fuels because we wanted to create more pathways that also have the sequestration built into them. But the reality of it is in the marketplace, the incentives today are not to make things that also do the sequestration. And so you end up with fuels. And in that case, at best, you could be neutral because you're creating emissions again. And so that is not to be used as a method of sequestration by itself, but it's like compared to if you were to just use fuels that didn't use CO2 in the process, then you're creating still more emissions than that. So for each case, we have to do the life cycle assessment to to see exactly, you know, what are we looking at? And I suppose there's to some extent right now we're trying to make a market. And so... You know, like most things in climate, if you're a complete purist, it gets hard to justify anything. Whereas here, building a market for CO2, you know, even if part of that market is being used to generate products that won't permanently sequester the CO2, it's still creating a market for CO2 that some of which will go to permanent sequestration as well. And again, help fund both R&D and scale of companies that are working in this space. Exactly. Yeah, because it's sequestration is not always like feasible either. Like if you think about say Japan right now, even if they wanted to do it, they just don't have the place for it. And actually one of the things that, you know, you mentioned about the bill that just passed the inflation act. And one of the things that I was pushing for, which unfortunately didn't happen this time around and so many other companies was to increase the, the incentives also for utilization. Because right now, we're incentivizing companies just to store the CO2. So then why would they give it to us for utilization if they could get more tax credits by just sequestration? But if the objective of government spending the tax money is to give us a strategic advantage in terms of technology, there is no uh, new technology when it comes to sequestration. Just for direct air capture, yes, but not for sequestration. That's TRL9 technology, you know, Oxy and others have been doing. 
since you know 50 years ago. So that is utilization is where help is needed because it's a nascent industry, but it could be really impactful. So hopefully next time around, we'll, we'll try again to bring more parity to this uh, 45Q. Yeah, there's been a ton of debate and dialogue in the in the MCJ Slack community around 45Q and, and sequestration relative to utilization over the years. And I think obviously what happened now was trying to encourage oil and gas companies to sequester uh, rather than emit and putting the tax credits toward that, but agree that figuring out how we then can incentivize further innovation by actually utilizing the CO2 for manufacturing, hopefully is the next frontier that we'll get to. So let's let's talk a bit about then your product line in this area. What does it mean, again, to use microbes to help with essentially carbon to value use cases? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the spectrum of pathways, you know, say ethylene is the biggest organic molecule in the world. So it goes pretty much into all polymers and plastics. So if you could, you know, make ethylene from CO2, you know, that's really a way that we could decarbonize polymers and plastics. SAF the same way, you know, like within a few years, there could be even more. Sorry, I'll interrupt you there just to unpack acronyms, SAF being sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, sorry, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, you know, that all the airlines now, when you book a flight, you could choose and offset your flight carbon footprint. And, you know, it shouldn't be just based on offsets, you know, like because you did this and then someone goes and plants a tree, it should also be companies actually changing what they do and how, what fuel they use. So we're seeing this huge demand for sustainable aviation fuels. And we have a pathway that could, you know, potentially create the most low carbon way to produce SAF because the other pathways use biomass. They still need, you know, a good amount of energy for the reactions, whereas our pathway doesn't and uses CO2 as an input into the process. So SAF, and then the one that, you know, you mentioned that that is a bit new is the renewable natural gas. So let me touch on that really quick. If you think today, the world, kind of supply of natural gas is mostly coming from drilling. Like you drill while you produce natural gas. But then you also have what they call biogas or renewable natural gas. So this comes from landfills because the, all the organic matter is kind of producing methane or from anaerobic digesters who are connected to like uh, dairy farms and things like that, right? So think about what is happening is basically there's this microbes called methanogens. You know, they make methane. And so these are the microbes that are inside that anaerobic digester these are the microbes that are at the depth of that landfill producing methane. These are also the same microbes that are inside the belly of a cow, <laughs> which is why they, they produce methane. So in that case, we said, okay, can we learn from these microbes and create another pathway that is starts from CO2, gets us to an intermediate substrate, you know, an intermediate product that we could then use with anaerobic digestion to produce that end, you know, product, which is now called renewable natural gas, because it is renewable. So if you think about even like what's happening right now in Europe and Russia and Germany, like they want to have access to natural gas, but if it's only based on a drilling and being shipped somewhere, that's not a good, you know, safe option. You want to be able to produce it in situ. And pathways that start from CO2 give you that ability because there's not enough chicken farms and, and cow farms going around to produce the amount of you know, renewable natural gas to create a dent into the supply from natural gas. And 
you know, it's a lower carbon option, which is why you've seen distraction around it. Yeah, it, I mean, it does still obviously create emissions, and I assume it is essentially methane. So you have the same concerns and issues that if there are leaks or whatnot, you're releasing highly potent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But what I'm hearing you say is, however, it is reusing existing CO2 streams to harness it. And presumably, I would think of this then as a as a bridge technology as we bridge our way to a more renewable and clean energy future. Is that how you would think about this? Yeah. And, and generally, this is how I think. Like on the hydrocarbon side with CCUS and the natural gas side, same way, you know, if you know, electrification enabled by solar, wind, nuclear, is geothermal is going to take a longer time, meaning that we're going to need to continue fossil fuels in the meantime. Why not figure out in the meantime to reduce their emissions, but also create more creative ways of producing the end molecule using those emissions? So that's you know an example of making renewable natural gas from CO2. So Moji, you kind of started to go down this path earlier, but you know we just talked about three incredibly disparate use cases. You're a small startup trying to pursue all of them. My assumption is it will be really hard for you to be best in the world at multiple pathways at once. I'm curious what you view yourselves as being best in the world at, and I assume it has something to do with the R&D around new microbes for solutions, but maybe maybe help us understand how you view sort of the, the, the key expertise and key IP in your business. Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's one I've thought a lot about. It's also, we get I, with this question a lot because we don't exactly fit into a category that company could say, oh, there's like, these are the comparable companies. The companies that do a portion of what we do you know, like 12, you mentioned Lanzotech and Ginkgo Bioworks and others. But we're creating a new category for a deployment of industrial biotech across energy transition. And we don't do things because they're like the easier thing to do or the, the simpler to explain and things like that. I think about, you know, when Larry Fink and Bill Gates are talking about 2050 and the comp- type of companies that would be in the forefront of energy transition, what would they look like? What technologies are they deploying, you know, and coming back from that. So what do we need to do today to set us up in that direction? So that's kind of the thinking. But in terms of how we managed to do it, we've created a seamless biofoundry, as we call it, where we do cross-fertilization of ideas across the three verticals. So they're actually, we have a map of interconnection between them and we have a matrix organization where we have business units and business unit leaders who are more industry focused. For example, Marnie Weeks, who is a VP of biomining, you know, comes from 25 years in the mining industry. But then, you know, we have a workflow for the projects, you know, from microbiology, molecular biology, genetic engineering, scale up. And all projects go through the same workflow. So that allows us to pull this off in something that from outside looks like three different companies but it's very well interconnected all within some beta. And yes, a lot of IP involved too across, because as you can imagine, this is all gray areas between different disciplines and less explored. So we have a huge focus on that. You know, and as I think about the evolution of these sectors and these industries, you know, over the last 50, 75 years, these technologies are, are fairly siloed, right? Whether it's mining, whether it's sort of 
managing subsurface resources or whether it's creating in products to be used as feedstocks. Those are three very different industries and sectors that have a lot of sunk capex into them. And what I'm hearing about you and other companies in the syn, in the syn bio space right now is the fact that the production side of these businesses is platformized, right? Like you're producing things in bioreactors or whatnot that don't necessarily require heavy sector specific technology. And that is enabling you to work across use cases. I still suspect that the go to market in terms of ultimately transport and logistics of the outputs of your business are going to need to stay verticalized in the industry sectors that they live in today. And so what you're really talking about is platformizing the production level of these industries in a way that they haven't been able to do in the past because of sector specific technology. Am I understanding that correctly in terms of the phenomenon that's happening broadly in SynBio? You hit the nail exactly on the head. I actually wrote about this at Biofuel Digest because any synthetic biology company, you have to choose, are you platform or are you product company like right off the bat? And if you make the wrong call, you're screwed. And we've seen that play out in the market like with Zymogen is a good example. So what we decided to do is to be a platform, but we're very creative in the way we could go deeper into that vertical to commercialize these applications without the platform being disrupted. For example, if you look at SAF, that's in partnership with United, but Oxy is the execution partner. So Oxy has years of experience in building out and scale up and licensing all that. So they could help us there. Or if you've got gold hydrogen, that's a wholly owned subsidiary of Sunbita. So that allows gold hydrogen to be more flexible in what they need to do to bring their solution to market, whereas Sunbita could stay focused on the platform. And so for every one of these microbes that you're productizing or microbe solutions that you're productizing, maybe more accurately, you then need to make a decision as a business or are you going to build out the CapEx to support the production of this? Or are you going to work in partnership with another organization that has this need and maybe has infrastructure already in place? In which case you may become more of a licensing business than a product business. Or am I hearing you say you've already made that decision across the whole stack and thus you look for licensing opportunities for different microbe solutions that you're developing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fluid. So we evaluate in a case by case. But the thing is, people at Sambita, we come from this industry. It's like we've built plans, we've operated plans. So this is not like a mountain to us in terms of how that works. It's more about what makes sense for what pathway in the marketplace, you know, and, and the speed by which we need to execute. And how are you typically sourcing solutions? You've built these three very disparate solutions to date. Are these ideas that you're coming up with? Are they companies coming to you and saying, hey, is there a solution for this area? Is you know, It's probably a little bit all of the above, but maybe walk us through one or two examples of how a project itself kind of came to be. So it's a really fun process. It goes both ways. You know, we do kind of what could science enable. At the same time, one thing that has been really important to us and the kind of curated in the past five years is to build really deep relationship with our current network of customers and investors who include CVCs. So you have Oxy, you have BHP, you have Mitsubishi, you have Sumitomo, and then even like AD90 who led our survey and, and ECB who joined, they have a lot of LPs who you know either are at big companies or, or built big companies. So if you can imagine, you know, through working with them, 
we get a pretty good sense of what is needed in the marketplace and then try to convert with what we think is possible and in the grand scheme of things that you know we could actually do with the resources that we have. So it's a very kind of a interesting process of, of learning. None of these have been an aha moment. There have been several stage gate processes, approvals to kind of de-risk in. But at the end of the day, I expect us to fail. Like I expect us to go after moonshot projects. And that's how you know that you are, you know, really shooting to knock it out of the park. So it's a spectrum. You know, the thing that to, to answer your question is, is interesting is you have to really understand the intricacies of the customer, what they're dealing with, to be able to know what solution is going to work. And so if you think about renewable natural gas, you know, that's how it has evolved because it's not just about, oh, this reaction. You have to know how do anaerobic digesters operate today? How do natural gas companies think about it? Some of the natural gas companies are now getting into that business, like Chevron, but, you know, the biggest renewable natural gas company. And so where do we fit in in that scenario? And, and you know, finding the right opportunity to start, to de-risk the technology, protect the IP, package it up, and then to expand from there to the rest of the market. So our team is, is kind of, this is how they think. And they go through cycles to arrive at what makes sense today and in the future. How do you see sales and business development changing for companies in, in your space, whether you're, you directly or in general? I think one, one area that I really like this happening is it's become more creative. You know, it's like it, it, you see different ways that companies are collaborating because energy transition is very collaborative. And the deals are becoming more interesting, you know, and people are open to new ideas. What enables the energy transition? You see a lot of more three-way partnerships too with the off-taker, the technology provider, and kind of an execution partner. And that allows companies, say like, like us, like 12 and others, to, to bring solutions to market faster. CVCs are playing a, a bigger role than ever before in energy transition. And so that's been really exciting. And so what I tell our team is, for any scenario, we just think about what makes sense and forget about what's what's the status quo, how they've done it before, what the template they've used and things like that. And then we go say the same thing to our lawyers. Just say, this is the deal we want to do. And, you know, we go down and sit with the client and discuss it and, and just kind of go from there. But, you know, the other aspect that's helping with this is that companies need solutions. Like these commitments have been made and, you know, the CEOs look at the VPs and say, well, I did my job. Now you go and make it happen. So they're really looking for solutions. So that is, you know, good setup for collaboration with the startups, which is why you see startups in this area growing really rapidly compared to before. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, the, the, the roles, even roles like sales and business development and marketing need to be super entrepreneurial right now because you're out having to solve problems in the market. You're not just selling off a rate card. <laughs> you know, I imagine every person you're bringing on board today has the ability to go fairly deep on the technology that you're developing and sort of identify what are potential solutions that are relevant for the company versus not. Exactly. Yes. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Emoji. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? No, I think we covered a, a good spectrum of everything. And I know it could be a lot, just different solutions and opportunities, but that's what's really exciting about it. It's a new industry energy transition and you know same with the synthetic biology we're exploring how we could use one you know solution to solve a problem
anyone who is, you know, interested today in what you're building, whether as a potential partner, as, you know, someone who is excited to try to work with you on this, what are you needing help with right now? Yeah, uh, we'll love to connect. I mean, everything that we do is, is built upon collaboration. So we're very open to you know, exploring opportunities with different parties. You know, we have some growth kind of plans in the future. So, you know, a lot of the followers, audience here, I'm sure some of them, we you know, know each other or will be in touch in different ways. We'd love to connect with those that I haven't had an opportunity to, to meet. And yeah, so just, yeah, you keep an eye on, on the news coming from Samvita. We have some exciting things in the pipeline for, you know, Q3 and Q4. So yeah, samvitafactory.com or my LinkedIn, you know, happy to stay in touch. Moji, I, I super appreciate your time. Love that you're, as a company, breaking down silos because that's what needs to happen for us to solve climate change. And thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. And you know, Cody, it's also the silo of people. Like, you know, I'm in Houston, came from the energy industry. Now we had such fun discussions with, you know, tech industry, you know, Silicon Valley, Boston, New York. And at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. It's just, you know, the understanding, which is why it's, you know, really, really amazing what you guys are doing. So thanks again for having me. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it any better. All right. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at my climatejourney.co note that is .co not .com someday we'll get the .com but right now .co you can also find me on twitter at jjacobs22 where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear and before I let you go if you enjoyed the show please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes the lawyers made me say that Thank you.